Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Pete Holmes. Pete hosted his own late-night talk show on TBS, The Pete Holmes Show, that aired after Conan in 2013 and 2014. He's still the host of the very popular podcast, You Made It Weird, and he's back in New York City this fall, filming an HBO pilot directed by Judd Apatow called Crashing, which revisits Pete's own experiences in New York City a decade earlier, when he was a young comedian who needed places to crash after his divorce. Pete and I go back personally to those days, and I get him to go back even deeper. So let's get to it! Pete Holmes. There you go. Welcome to Last Things First. It sounds okay? Yeah, it sounds Okay, great. I can hear you. They can hear me. We're good. Yeah, we're good. You interviewed Marin with what? Just the, the ambient microphones there? Yeah. And no we were in a hotel lobby and you could hear everything. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I've had episodes. I but did Russell Peters <laughs> and I did, I had one of these, what is this called? A Zoom? Yeah. And there's the mic input and there's the, and the microphone, the mic on the unit and then external microphones. And I had it on the wrong setting. Oh. So this just didn't record. But I had my backup, my iPhone. Okay. But then I released an episode that was just recorded off my iPhone just sitting between us. You'd think everyone would be like, what the fuck? This sucks. Nobody noticed. <laughs> it was great. But now they can go back. Now they can go back and, and notice now that I've told them. Yes, you're right. I've ruined, I've ruined that episode. <laughs> it's so a terrible Pete, thing. So Pete Holmes, welcome to Last Things First. Thanks, man. Last Things First. Yeah, so Good name. You, are, you are back in New York to film an HBO pilot. Yes. Called Crashing. Yes. How, how quickly can you tap into that, that feeling of when you first came to New York? That's a great question. Uh, you know, Judd, Judd actually uh, told me something very interesting. He's kind of pre-directing me right now because we're not filming. Right. Uh, but he's trying to kind of plant in my head, because uh, this is the first type of this, this type of acting that I've done. You know what I mean? So I think he's trying to kind of put it right. in my subconscious, this is, this let is it no, ferment. There's no Batman, Ray Romano. Yeah, it's not a sketch. It's not no. me being super silly or over the top. So he's like, don't act like... He was like, there's something just kind of... Uh, you feel comfortable doing comedy, and that's going to come across, even though I'm playing an amateur. He was like, so just try and think of your excitement doing the pilot. You know what I mean? That is such right. new terrain. So to kind of like keep myself anchored uh, in a world that's very new and exciting, I'm just going to think of how new and exciting it is to do the pilot. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. Because it's hard for me to fake. And I don't think Judd likes it when people pretend to be bad at comedy. I know that's kind of an arrogant, it's, it makes me sound like I'm saying I'm great at comedy. And I do like my comedy, but I'm just saying like, he doesn't want me to go up and act like awkward right. or like stumble over my words or whatever. He's like, go up and do your bits. And that's what he did for funny people, even though Seth Rogen's character was like a newer comedian. He was still good. You know what I mean? What kind of comedian were you when you first moved to New York? Uh, I was very, very clean. Very, 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 very clean. I kind mm. of made, I don't know, you, you didn't see my set? Tonight. No, not tonight. I kind of make fun of that. Uh, I just didn't want to be redundant. I make fun of it on stage, talking about how I'm like, appear to be squeaky clean and friendly. And uh, it's not natural for me to be in this kind of tough guy comedy club. Um, and that was more true of me then than it is true of me now. You taking off, Keith? See you, man. Uh, 
meaning I'm kind of more comfortable talking about dicks or whatever it is. Whatever might come up, I'm okay talking about it. But when I first started, I really wouldn't. You know what I mean? I wouldn't swear. I wouldn't talk about sex. I didn't have anything to say about sex. I didn't have anything to say that really necessitated swearing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what did you talk about in your act? It was very observational. It was very Seinfeldy. Right. I actually said a line. I just wanted to see if it would work. A line that I used to open with here uh, 10, 15 years ago. I'd get on stage and I'd go, uh, I almost didn't make it tonight. You ever hail a cab just to stop it from hitting you? Because I thought it was a good, like, chaotic New York joke. It does okay. It's a, right. fi- it's a fine joke. It's kind of like a tweet. And now <laughs> I try and do stuff that almost doesn't even work if I'm not selling it. And I kind of like that. It's less bulletproof, but it's more uh, personality-driven. But back uh, to give you more examples, I would, I would talk about, like, a, a classic example I like to give of my old stuff was, like, uh, I talked about reading the back of an ice pack, and it said, a bittering agent has been added to the contents of this ice pack to discourage consumption. And tell me if this doesn't sound like Seinfeld, I'd go, I love that. Because that's saying to me, before, the ice pack was too delicious. <laughs> I didn't say it like that, but I mean, that's, right, that's a Seinfeld. If you want to make it Seinfeldian, you would have to say it like that. I would that. say, to me, the ice pack before was too delicious. You right. know, it was, I just didn't say it in a Long Island accent. Of course, the other key element to your first New York experience was you were just coming out of a divorce. Well, I was married. The thing that's different about the show, uh, the TV show right. that doesn't exist yet, uh, but the pilot we're shooting, and what actually happened, because right. the, the show is a riff off of what actually happened, is that we were living in New York for seven years before uh, we moved upstate. Okay. And then we got divorced upstate. And then you came back. And then I came here. Okay. In the reality of the show, we were living upstate, and I'm kind of dabbling in comedy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we get divorced, the conceit of the show is I don't have anywhere to stay. And every episode, I'm crashing with a different comedian. So there could be like the Jim Norton episode or the whatever, any, any right. comedian you can think of, um, the Keith Robinson episode. And then, uh, so it, it kind of throws me in the deep end of comedy. In reality, I was already I was already doing it. But the okay, so the real life Pete Holmes in his mid twenties, married. This has got to be so far away from whatever you were dreaming at the time. What is? What is happening now in your life? You mean if you could tell twenty two year old Pete that your wife was gonna fuck a, another guy? I always like to say a small Italian man, and then uh, I would. Later, look back on that as actually one of the best things that ever happened, and and the basis for it. And then the basis, and then later you will make a show about that tragedy. I think that still confuses my parents very much. They're like old school Boston Irish Lithuanians that are like, uh, why would you ever bring that up again? Like, (laughs) we don't talk about this. It's a family disgrace. You should never. And I'm like, it's the first episode. Is and I'm very careful that it's it's from a loving perspective. Uh, meaning you understand why my wife leaves. And I do understand why right. my wife left. Uh, but it is a weird thing. I do, I do like to remind myself of how surreal that is because I, I'm, I'm a big believer that we need to kind of program our brains to remain grateful and remain happy. And one of the things I like to do is go, can you imagine telling, forget 22-year-old Pete, if I could tell 12-year-old Pete, that I do comedy. I mean, he'd, he'd love that. Yeah, what, what did 12-year-old Pete think? 
that, well, that, that this Pete. Twelve-year-old Pete would uh, would love this Pete, but twenty-two-year-old Pete would be a little bit more challenged by this Pete because twenty-two-year-old right. Pete was religious and, he, and would be offended by some of the things I say. Thought you would be married forever to. He certainly thought we would be married. Yeah, absolutely. That that is actually a big reason why my wife left me. I think is because I took it as such a foregone conclusion. That's something I like to tell people as much as I can. Is like never stop pursuing the person you're with. Uh, I know that sounds like kind of trite advice, but it's true. I really was like, no, you're my wife, right? And that's it. It's not that I I was very loving and doting even, but I I never thought that she might leave. So getting your your finger kind of bit by the snake a little yeah. bit, it's actually kind of good. Uh, I never fully relax with my girlfriend. And that sounds like a bit, but there's something nice about being like, you are desirable and I'm not possessive or, or anything like that. Like I'm, I never, where are you, where are you? Like I'm not worried about that. But I like to remember, you are desirable to me, which means like I need to make you make sure you feel that way. No, I was married in my twenties. Were you really? And so I, this life that I'm leading now is nothing like I pictured when I was 28. Yeah, I mean flowers grow in dirt, baby. You know my, what I'm my, saying? Well, I pictured my parents have been married. My parents got married the day after their college graduation and are still together. So wow. I just figured that's what you do. Yeah. Even though everybody I grew around, grew up around were products of divorce. That's very interesting. Uh, so but, I mean, why not go for it? It seems like such a wholesome Captain America kind of approach. You know what I mean? When I watch the Avengers, I'm like, this Captain American guy, he's I like him. <laughs> he's, he's got values and stuff. And you and I made a play at that. The bizarre thing, and I really think one of the jobs we were talking, we did a podcast earlier, you and I. Yes. Uh, the Comedy Cellar podcast. One of the interesting things is these tragedies that you would never ask for end up being the, like the fire in the kiln that like refines you and I know that's cliche too but that which does not kill you makes you stronger I mean for real though and and when I look at my uh, divorce and I'm sure you feel the same way I wasn't being fully I didn't have the courage to fully admit what I wanted which was a life where I could uh, perform here and tour around and uh, have that creative freedom to say anything I want. I don't abuse that, of course, but my girlfriend would understand if I wanted to do a bit about, none of this is true, but if I wanted to do a bit about how she's always doing her hair or whatever, she would understand that the art is my job. Right. And, and that, of course, I love her to death. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was kind of in a repressive, smaller place, and I needed something to break me out yeah. of it. And tragedy was the uh, jackhammer. <laughs> so what did that 22-year-old Pete think that your career was going to, going to amount to? 22, you know, here's, I'll summarize 22-year-old Pete right here, is uh, you have to green light your own dreams. It's mm -hmm. really crazy. And if you don't believe it, this sounds like Tony Robbins, but if you don't believe it, no one else is going to believe it. And 22-year-old Pete used to submit his, uh, like his sketch demo to SNL. Okay. But I'd also drop it off and I'd be partially afraid that I was going to get it. Because if I got it, it would probably ruin my marriage, you know what I mean? And this was before YouTube, probably. Yeah, it was around, so, YouTube was new. It so was how YouTube. are you dropping off this sketch demo? My friend Is, Oren would burn it for me and would okay. put it on a disc. Yeah, I would put it on a DVD and I'd drop it off. I remember so resentfully being like, I knew Mulaney was upstairs and I was like, here I am cold calling. Why can't I 
why can't I bring this up to my friend? But of course he was new and he right. didn't want to be vouching for I mean, me. He was brand new at the time. And he shouldn't have been. Um, but uh, so 22-year-old Pete was playing with scared money. You know what I mean? So I wanted my own show. I wanted like an Everybody Loves Raymond or something like that. I wanted to be on SNL. I wanted to do movies. But I knew that I had this kind of double life going. And, you know, I, I'm very interested in, in the comedy relationship theory, meaning who is it that you should be with. And the main, one of the main flaws in my marriage was that she didn't really get a kick out of being my wife. The sidekick. She didn't want to be my sidekick. Yeah, exactly. She said that when we broke up. She said, I don't want to be Pete Holmes's wife. Mm. And I, I respect that. I respect that she wanted to kind of go, it's not that she wanted to be famous or anything, but she wanted to go and do something else. She had other values. My current girlfriend has plenty of her own dreams and aspirations, but she's also Sylvan's. How are you, man? <laughs> I'm all right. Okay, all right. Uh, I'm, I'm honored he knows I have a show. Uh, Will Sylvan's. Um, anyway, what was I saying? What about 12-year-old what about Pete? What did 12-year-old Pete want out of your adult life? 12-year-old Pete, I killed it for 12-year-old Pete. I'm a comedian. My girlfriend has big boobs. Uh, is I, that I, what you yeah. drew up? Oh, for sure. It, that's, this is what I'm talking about. Like, big boobs for me really is a good example of, like, what is it that you'd like right. to do for real? And I remember when I was young saying to my friend, I was like, I could never date a girl with big boobs because then my parents would meet her, see her breasts. You can't hide breasts. And they would know, oh, Pete's, like, perverted. Like, he likes big breasts. Mm. So there's something really beautiful about green lighting and being like, no, fuck it, man. I was right when I was 12. When I was 12, I wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to learn as much as I could about hypnosis and UFOs and ghosts. And I wanted to do comedy all the time. Yeah. And he'd be so proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> how, how far have you come along on the hypnosis? Hypnosis is, is still fairly interesting to me, but it's one of those things like other people's dreams that isn't interesting to other people. Right. I have a hypnotherapist. People think you have to be like weak-minded to get hypnotized. I don't, I, I've seen her four times. It's mm -hmm. not like something I do all the time, but I go when I really feel like there's something in my craw, like in my subconscious. Right. Uh, but I find that stuff interesting. I just, you know, I use that as an example of things that were fascinating when we were young. Right. UFOs, what the fuck is going on? And then we kind of replace it with the uh, average choices of like sports and uh, blockbuster movies and uh, titties or whatever it is. You know what I mean? And we're li I know one of mine was titties, so I just contradicted right. myself. You know what I'm saying? We start That's talking how about who, it was. who, yeah, who won a game instead of being like, do you think we're alone in the universe? I do not think we're alone in the universe. <laughs> Good. How could we be? So I big. Jeez. That's so huge. So self-absorbed. The hubris, exactly. <laughs> the audacity. Now, you had moved to Chicago before New York? Yes, it went like this. Uh, I was in Boston, and uh, that's when I got married, 22. Right. And the sad thing about my marriage is I really needed my wife to help me move to Chicago. I wanted to move to Chicago. Why I did you want to move to Chicago? Because I wanted I wanted to do what Farley did, which was, if you read a book, I don't mean like if you read a fucking <laughs> book. I mean if you read the book version of what Chris Farley did. Right. So he did comedy in college. Check. Right. He moved to Chicago. Check. check. He got on SNL. Like that's 
how the story goes. And the truth is, is that Farley was a bit of an outlier in the sense that, first of all, he was a hurricane of comedy and would have made right. it no matter when he started. He was one of those prodigies we were talking about on exactly. the other podcast. He's an absolute prodigy. Absolutely. He goes to Chicago, though, at a time when there wasn't as much of it. By the right. time I got to Chicago, it was a real business. It was a turn and burn. It probably still is. And I don't, I'm not putting it down. I just mean it was me and about 300 other tall, goofy white guys that were the, the star of their college improv team that read the same. I met people that read the same articles about <laughs> Farley that made them move. So then I ended up doing stand-up as a means of getting more stage time, okay. more, more ways to perform. Were you, were you not getting much in the way of improv or sketch? Look, in an improv team, you're only as good and you're only as committed as your team. And it's really hard to find a team that would like to perform every night. You know okay. what I mean? It's also really hard to find a theater and a coach that want to accommodate that nonsense. But if you're a stand-up, once you get to a certain level, you can perform every night. If you check your ego at the door and are willing to X, Y, and Z for it, blow jobs, hand jobs, and rim jobs. All but, you know, hand, hand out flyers. So when I got to New York, so I was there for three years, saw the movie Comedian. And I was like, that's it. I got to move to New York. Move to New York. Did open mics for about maybe three weeks. Then I couldn't afford it. I literally didn't have enough money because you had to buy two items to do the open mics. So it would be like $15 a mic. It's pay to play. It was pay to play. They're like at 4.30. There was an open mic here at the cellar. It was at 6 o'clock. You'd have to buy two drinks. So you're like, and you had to tip. I was a waiter. I was never not going to tip. So you're tipping and you're getting two Cokes. Fucking sucks. So then I started barking. But it, the idea of doing stand-up every night in New York was an achievement. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it wasn't like, I want to get on Letterman. I did. But I was like, I just want to perform every night in New York. And it was right around the corner. What was the next achievement that you unlocked? From that? Yeah. I did that for four months. No. Where six. you're like, okay, I've, I've reached the next guidepost. I barked every night for six months, mm -hmm. I think is what it was. I might be wrong. What was your technique for barking? Well, you got to put the flyer back in the pile, you know, so you got a, a stack of flyers. You whip it out fresh mm -hmm. every time. You can't just leave it hanging out <laughs> there. You got to make it look like you want it. But then you're like, here you go. You can this have it. This one is just for you. And I'd always just say great live comedy. I never said, I never lied. I think a lot of these guys lie. Yeah. It's not, not to put them down. They're just trying to get people in the seats, but you know. No, I feel bad when I walk through Times Square thinking about all of the Comedy Central employees who have to be at these showcases oh, that are yeah. happening all over the city every night. Yeah, interesting. Because it's always a Comedy Central showcase. That's really interesting. <laughs> That's really funny. It's all because you get one guy with a credit you, and you feel like you can call the show yeah. a Comedy Central showcase. What was your first credit? Well, I like telling the story but I, because I like giving uh, shout outs to people. First of all, Dustin Chafin gave me stage time and he really did move me up. You mm -hmm. know, like I barked. He moved me from like the 2 a.m. Monday spot to the 10 o'clock Monday spot pretty quickly uh, after a couple months and well, a lot of hard work. So he, he was good to me. And then I started doing UCB and Sean Conroy was one of the first people that gave me a spot. Actually, I'm sorry, Nick Stevens okay. gave me my first spot at the Shark Show. And I went up and I was like, oh my God, this is where I belong. I was, you know, I was performing at a real rough and tumble place and I'm going up and talking about ice packs it's not gonna go well right then i go to the shark show and that was uh, at parkside lounge or where was that it was at parkside yeah okay. the original shark show parkside lounge then i went to mo pitkins i always did the shark show the whole time i was there 
And I, I went up to Nick and I literally just like, you know, if you were going to dramatize it, turn it up one click, I would have been crying, like, like watering in my eyes. Because I really was like, Hail Mary, please. I need, I lived in Chicago for three years. I swear I'm good. Please give me a spot on the show. And he gave me a spot just because he could see in my face that I wasn't fucking around. <laughs> and, you know, I followed through. I did really, really well on that show. And ever since then, I did it once a month until it ended. Mm -hmm. So five years or something. So that was a big thing for me. Then Sean Conroy booked me. Sean Conroy was the guy I went to UCB after school, school night. or It was either school night or hump night. It was hump night, Wednesday night show. And I went up and I was like, I, there was a line of people waiting to ask him, how do you get on this show? Oh, wow. There's a line of people, kooky old ladies, guys that look like me, <laughs> tiny Indian women. And then I'd go up and I'd be like, I, I, it's the same question, man. I'm just wondering how you get booked. It's like four or five people ahead of me. And he sat out. He's like, look, I'll tell you the same thing everybody said. And this is the best comedy, the most honest comedy advice on how to get booked. He goes, this isn't how it works. He didn't say that uncaringly. He was like, it's not how it works. You don't come up and just ask me for a spot. What happens is I'll hear about you <laughs> and then I will book you. And that seems like such a catch 22. But the truth is, is there were other rooms that were below that room that I should have been trying at first. And then he did hear about me. And he was true to his word and he booked me. Then I did that show and I was trying to get on this show called Welcome to Our Week with Nick Kroll and Jesse Klein. And the week that Sean Conroy booked me at UCB on Hump Night, Nick Kroll was on the show. So I'd been going to that show, just hanging out, and a big comedy skill, trying not to be creepy. All of those should be capitalized. T and T B C. Trying not to be creepy. Just hanging out and being nice. Hello, Eugene. I'm freaking out that I'm meeting Eugene Merman. Hey, there's Mulaney. There's Nick Kroll. Really freaking out. These guys are awesome. Then I happen to do the show with Kroll. I really hope he watches me. I don't ask him to watch me. You, you know, you're kind of letting some of it into the hands of fate. He does watch me. I mentioned that I'd like to do the show. He books me. I mean, he gave me his email or something, and then he booked me. I do it a, a week. I'm really hoping that Jesse Klein is there. This is where <laughs> I get a little Machiavellian, because Jesse Klein was a Comedy Central executive right. at the time. And I knew that. It wasn't, I wasn't being shifty. But I knew that Jesse Klein was there. I, want, I had these goals. I wanted to do Premium Blend, and I wanted to be on Best Week Ever. Jesse Klein is one of the pro executive producers of Premium Blend, or she was a producer. At the time. At the time. And she was on Best Week Ever, so I was like, this is my goal in one person. Go and do the show. Nick wasn't even there that week. She was there, 15 people in the crowd. And I went up and I did what I would do on Premium Blend, probably what I ended up doing on Premium Blend. Did my set. Uh, next day, I emailed Nick, told him it went well, asked him for Jesse's email. He gave me Jesse's email. I emailed Jesse. I said, thank you. So All I said was, thank you so much. She replied, uh, you were great. You should submit for Premium Blend. And I was like, <laughs> what? I, I was religious at the time. And, I, you know, I still believe in things. But, you know, an illustration of how religious was. And I actually think this is nice. I'd like to think I would still do this in a different way. I literally got on my knees and, like, thanked God in that moment. Because it was such a literal answer to right. prayer or whatever. And then I wrote back, this is balls, in right. the email I said, I'd love to. I'd all, I'm also dying to get on Best Week Ever. I'm sorry to ask for a favor on top of a favor. But do you know who? And she didn't reply. She did this classy move. 
was she had Fred Graver, the EP of Best Week Ever. He wrote me and said, Jesse told me that you're... And, I'd, and I'd, so I was in New York for six months before I had two TV credits. It was crazy. I was embarrassed. Where did the, where did the goal... I was happy and embarrassed. Where did that so intensely goal-oriented young Pete get think, that? Yeah, it sounds... Like, I read all those books later. You know what I mean? Like, Tony... I really do like Tony right. Robbins and all that stuff. I didn't know about goal-setting except maybe hearsay. You know, it's kind of like good to have a goal or right. something. But I, I remember when I was 22 and starting comedy, I, I loved Conan, and I was like, my goal is to do Conan by the time I'm 30. And I like to say that my divorce threw me off by a year because I was 31. But then when I was 33, I had a TV show after. I mean, it was crazy. So that was an, a really, in my experience, setting goals is creepy. Right. It's really creepy. Because if you write it on paper and if you put it somewhere where you see it from time to time, like in a drawer, yeah, it plants it in your subconscious and it kind of helps you spot the breadcrumbs. You know what I mean? So these things start to happen. You start saying yes to certain things, maybe no to other things. And it keeps you on the path a little bit. I'd like to say it was my father. I'd like to say it was a professor. But I don't remember who did, it was. Did you have to-do lists like on your dorm whiteboard or... Yeah, I, I was into that sort of stuff. I was into, like, the idea... I remember... I like the idea of a nemesis. I had a nemesis. I've talked about him before. His name was Nathan Trenholm. Wonderful comedian. He was a friend of mine. So nemesis doesn't mean someone I didn't like. Right. But I had a healthy competition with Nathan in my mind. And I remember nights that I didn't feel like going out. I remember being like, I bet Nathan's going out. So I would go out and not see Nathan. So it was nice to kind of pick your points right. and that helps you stay on the on the path a little bit and then I, I just kind of knew where I wanted to end up more or less and I used to say it on stage even it was so kind of in my subconscious that I would talk about it on stage sometimes I'd be like I just can't wait till I just want Con I just want to do Conan so badly or something you know what I mean uh, what was uh, what was your last day job uh, Bennigan's I worked at Bennigan's for three years and when did you when did you have the the money or the courage to quit that for good? Well, and this is another reason why I can never fully sell out my wife, even though she fell in love with somebody else, is that I was doing stand up in uh, Chicago. We were mm -hmm. there for three years, and uh, I worked, and I did stand up maybe three, two, two to three times a week, sometimes five times a week, but you know, two to three, yeah, average. And uh, I'd work at Bennigan's during the day. And then when we moved to New York, and I still feel this way about the city, I was like, there's something that this city just seems to insist on an all or nothing sort of approach. And even now when I'm here, I was just saying this to someone last night, I was like, when I'm in New York and I don't do a spot, it doesn't make any sense. Like the city doesn't want me, it doesn't love me, I don't love it. And then when I do a spot, everything makes sense. I'm like, oh, right, this is why I'm here. Uh, so when we moved here, I, I told my wife, I was like, it was very clear in my mind. I was like, I can't have a job because I have to just do stand-up every day. Did you ever get close to going back to a day job or a, no, a second night job? Or? Because of that story, like, it was a beautiful thing. She had, truth be told, she had student loans, mm -hmm. so we had a little money from that. Okay. And then she had a job. And she got a, a job teaching, and we both kind of lived off of that. But that was only for about four or five, 
six months. And then, then you I were was crashing. making more than her, which was great. Uh, how important? I don't know if I was making more, but I was making about what she made. How important then was it for you to? You mentioned teams in Chicago. You did form a team in New York with Front Page Films. Yeah. How how important was that to your career development? You know, man, that is a you're asking all the good questions. I think. Thank you. Um, I really looked at disease, right? There's disease. Right. A lot of people hated disease. I've told disease this. He knows this. He was aware of it. <laughs> People resented him. No one hated him, but right. people resented him. There's a lot of resentment in this business. If you shoot up fast and you're 22, people are going to be upset. Right. And I, was, I wasn't. Uh, I remember being tempted. It was fun to shit on him and whoever else might have been shooting up at the time. But I remember being like, what, why? Why are we shitting on this guy? He seems to really get it. You know what I mean? So he and I would tour a little bit together because we did the Best Week Ever Live tour. And I would just kind of uh, bend his ear a little bit and be like, what are you doing? How, how, and my big question for him was, where do you find a Jason Wooliner? Because Jason Wooliner was yeah, the director. Human Giant. J human Giant was Paul Shearer, Rob Hubel, Aziz, and Jason Wooliner. So from where I was sitting, it was Jason Wooliner. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, all those guys are great. But if you don't have a guy that can direct, edit, you know, do do sound, right, make do it effects, happen. you're just three hilarious guys with nothing to show for it. So I would be like, where do you find him? And, and Aziz was gracious. He hooked me up with Wooliner so I could email him and be like, where do you find another one of you? And I would literally have like lunches where I'd meet these guys that were these auteurs that could do everything. Right. And I'd pitch them ideas and stuff and see who fit. Honestly, I think I only met with maybe one or two because there weren't that many. And then one night I met uh, Rafifi and I did stand-up. And again, that's the product of your environment stuff. I was at Rafifi because like, I noticed that that's where Aziz and that's where Mulaney and that's where Kroll and Eugene, all these like really interesting guys were performing. The people who had the things you wanted Well, that's there. the big thing. Find who's doing what you want to do and go do it. Yeah. So I, you know, we're here at the Comedy Cellar, and I love performing here. It's wonderful. But I saw this other thing happening concurrently. Not better or worse, but it was just concurrent to this. And a lot of them did both. But it was interesting to see guys like Aziz uh, finding ways into new media way before anyone else. So then I was like, all right, that's the hot ticket. And I call this Burger Kinging. Meaning he opened a McDonald's and Burger King allegedly doesn't have an R&D department for where to open. They just open where McDonald's is. They figure that's where the customers are. And they did the research. So right. why figure it out? So why reinvent the wheel? Aziz figured out that if you, he told me this. I remember he goes, if you do these little videos, you can include them. If you audition for something, mm -hmm. you can uh, send them with, to clubs and be like, this is some of the stuff I do. And I was like, holy shit. It's like being on TV before you're on TV. And then I, at that show at Rafifi, I met Oren, Oren Brimmer. The guy, the guy you were dropping off sketch demos. Exactly. Oren's done about a billion favors for me, like burning those demos. And Oren, it was a, I think it was a, maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday when I met him. He showed a video, and it was a green screen video, and it had like picture-in-picture -picture effects and stuff. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's the real deal. It looked really good. And I told him, I was like hey, man, I have this idea for a sketch. It's a parody. And he had seen me kill. That helps. Mm -hmm. 
I pitched him this parody of a horror reality show, and we shot it that Saturday. <laughs> it's the only video we did where I'm still wearing my wedding ring. That's how long ago it is. Okay. Uh, and we did a video called Haunt. TJ Miller's in it, Jocelyn Hughes, Baron Vaughn, me. Uh, I think that's the whole cast. But we shot it that Saturday, and it had effects, and he edited it. He shot it. He brought a backpack, and he took out this huge fuck-off light fixture. And I was like, oh, I found my Wooliner. <laughs> and, you know, like a, six months later, we, we got a commercial on the Super Bowl and won $20,000 because there are all these crowdsourcing yeah. uh, events and That contests. was really in that first year of front-page films? I don't know. I'm kind of bad with time, but it, it was it was quickly after. Yeah. Then we used that twenty grand because the budget of our commercial was thirty dollars. Uh, we used that twenty grand to uh, I think maybe we gave each of us like a thousand dollars to be like go be happy with a thousand dollars, and the rest of it was our production budget for the next thing, which you know I don't remember what it was, but before long we did Batman, and before long we did. All these other things. Wow. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a huge part of Matt McCarthy and Oren and what we made together was one third of what the talk show was, you know? Right. So uh, that was a big thing for me. And the, the talk show, you were a warm-up guy at one point? I was a warm-up guy. I warmed up the Daily Show and uh, I did warm-up for a couple other things, but mostly just the Daily Show. Okay. But it, I was just a fill-in. I okay. filled in warm-up. So you weren't filling in, you weren't doing warm-up, filling in for Pardo at Conan? That no, was no, no. That, nope, that's not true. What happened with Conan, and people, sometimes people don't believe this because it's so kind of clean, is it had a lot to do with timing. It had a lot to do with sensibility, uh, meaning Conan and I have very right. similar sensibilities. Uh, maybe, not, maybe not if you look at first, but I think in our bones we're very similar philosophically. Uh, so I did stand up on Conan, my goal. I was 31. So here you are looking when we zoom out from our lives. It's a good thing that my wife knocked me a little bit sideways and I was 31 because little did I know around that time is when there were inklings Conan's looking for someone to be on after him. I did Conan again. I think I, uh, the first time I was 31, the second time I was 32 maybe, 32, uh, yeah, around then. Okay. Both times did really well. Both times talked to Conan afterwards for a long time, which I remember J.P. Buck, who was a big, he pushed for me when the list was made. I owe a lot to J.P. Buck as well. He was like, Conan doesn't normally do that, just so you know. He doesn't talk to people for half an hour right. postponing a meeting to talk to the comedian. I was like, oh, that's great. So next thing I know, I get a call Maybe a couple months after my spot, and, and it's just a general with Jeff Ross, not not the, the guy over the, there. The executive producer. For the EP of Conan. I met with Jeff. No talk of a talk show. A couple weeks later, I meet with Conan. Huge deal for me. I still have the drive on, like the pass for the lot. Right. And uh, I, I just met with him for about four, maybe 45 minutes. And all we did was talk about Boston, comedy, and religion and family we didn't say word one about a talk show or would you like to do a talk show right. next time i met with conan it was a couple weeks later so it was just a, it was just like this discussion here we're just shooting the shit three days later get another meeting it's me conan and jeff and my manager 
and a couple people from Conoco. And Conan says, well, I think we should go to TBS and tell them we've been looking for the guy to do the talk show and that we found the guy. And that's how I found out. So I was sitting next to Conan, pretending like it wasn't the 4th of July in my heart. And I was just like, okay, cool. I know I'm talking a lot, but that's, that's kind of right. how showbiz is, is. like There isn't the moment where someone calls you and they're like, you got it. It's always some like weird sideways approach like that. So as, awesome. as you enter this next phase, post-talk show pre-production for the HBO pilot, what's the, what's the kind of the... You, you, for your podcast, you talk to so many people spiritually and just yeah. comedically. What's, what's kind of the lingering piece of life lesson that you can grasp onto like what is the big takeaway from all this yeah that, that, as you as you press forward what's yeah what is kind of the well I, you reminded me of something Conan said which was he was like we all make a unique tone and there's a lot of noise like literally like the tone of a bell right and there's a lot of noise especially now web shows just for your phone and right. all this stuff, all I mean, these the, networks. Even this podcast is just another in a yeah, endless no. stream of podcasts. <laughs> for sure, but I actually admire that you that you still do it because this is to his point. You have a unique tone. You, Sean L. McCarthy, have a unique tone. I have a unique tone. And he said, what we need to do is be consistent and keep hitting, keep ringing your bell. And he's like, the, the powers that be or whatever you want to call it, that hear all the noise. Mm -hmm. After a while, we'll go, what is that? I've been hearing that particular frequency for a while. What is that about? Everyone else is changing and modifying and guessing. Right. Is this what you want? Is it what you want? You want vaginas? What do you want? You want ass? You want uh, blood? You want, what do you need? And then in the background, there's these like genuine moments of, uh, of expression. And that doesn't always pay out, but ideally with some persistence, uh, the right people will hear you. And there is some, people like to call it luck or whatever, or chance. And there's certainly, as, I, as I'm telling you the story, I, I'm reminded to be grateful for all the incredible timing right. for so many things. But, you know, you look at a guy like Conan who had so many ups and downs and almost cancellations and then revoking of shows. It never goes away. You're always still beating out that frequency and, uh, and trying to do your authentic work and be who it is that you're meant to be. I think that's, that's been valuable to me. Because what happened after the talk show was I had to ask myself the question, right. which was what would I do if I knew I had 10 years to live, what would the show be? What would the show be that I really feel like potentially is the show that, oh, this could be my, my great work. And your, it's not... Your legacy, your signature, your... Yeah. And it's not... Uh, it's not what I thought it was. I thought it might have been like a, a sketch. I love sketch comedy. And, of course, I wanted to do that. But then I, when I dug a little deeper, I was like, oh, I want to tell the story of a religious kid, a very sweet kid, whose first love cheated on him and kicked him into this kind of intimidating, scary world. And then I had to redefine what love meant and what God meant and what family meant and all that sort of, and what comedy meant and what your goals mean. I thought that was, uh, I think that was the big thing that I learned. It was like, what is it that you do that other people can't do? And then do that. And no one can tell this story as well as I can. Right. It's your story. Because it's my story. It's a riff on my story. <laughs> uh, 
so counterpoint to that, when somebody brand new comes to you in a line of 100 people in a meet and greet and ask you, sure. what, what, I want to be you, <laughs> what's, what's the first thing you tell them? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, the two pieces of advice, and they've come up here, one of them's already come up, is Ryan Hamilton. You, I know, I can't stop podcasting. You're such a good, it's so good to see you. Hi, everybody. I don't know what show we're on. Sean L. McCarthy's. Last things first. It's, uh, get your crosshairs on the person who's doing exactly what you want to do but not at my level, the guy that's just a little bit ahead of you. So if you haven't even done a show, admire the best open micer. When you're doing open mics, admire the, the guy that's doing the, shitty, the shittiest booked rooms. And just keep Burger Kinging in your own authentic way because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to, the, the, there's a path there. Right. So just do that and then copy what they did in the most interesting, relevant way. Here I am talking to Aziz. He's younger than I am, but he's ahead of me. Right. You know what I mean? So find the guy that's just a little bit ahead of you or the woman and do what they did. And the other thing is just perform as much as you can. Although that's a trickier subject than I think it is. I think you're a product of your environment, so you need to be careful where you perform, I think. <laughs> I don't think it's, it's always helpful to just perform wherever you can always. Right. I think you need a mix of 60-40. 60% rooms where you see people finding their voices that you admire. 40% things that scare the living hell out of you. And a lot of people do 90-10. A lot of people do 100-0. Right. I think it's about 60-40. You gotta be terrified. I just started playing here. I was so scared. I'm 36 years old. I've been doing comedy for 15 years. I've had my own show that we already talked about. I was still terrified of performing here. And that's good. That's like oxygen in my blood. It's, it's invigorating, it's inspiring, it's enlivening, and that's wonderful. And then I also have, uh, now I feel comfortable here, but then I also have the cozy little safe rooms right. that allow me to not worry so much about not bombing. <laughs> well, Pete, I hope that I didn't scare the hell out of you. No, you've always been a wonderful, warm man. And you know the first time we met was at Stand Up New York and we were doing a contest? Do you remember? Oh, it, it, it was the New York's funniest. At Stand Up New York, yeah. Funniest. And I didn't know you, and you sat next to me. And looking back with empathy, of course you were just as nervous as I was. What you didn't know, though, was that I was really nervous. <laughs> and uh, apparently you, you knew me a little bit. And you sat down, and I didn't know you were going on. I didn't know who you were, and you went, oh, man. I gotta follow the great Pete Holmes, is what he said to me. And I honestly didn't know if you were <laughs> like trying to psych me out or No, I fuck was not. Of course you weren't. No. But because I didn't know you, that was my first impression of you. <laughs> and now I'm glad I know that you're you're the Ewok of comedy and you're nothing nothing to be oh. afraid of. You're a gentle man. That's, that's, that's very <laughs> kind of you. Considering my higher power is Yoda, to be, to be thought of as an Ewok is... I'm almost there. They get it. <laughs> I'm almost there. There's something fun about the Ewoks. They get it. Yeah. They're evolved. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your, your unique voice with me. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I talk so much, man. I hope your uh, listeners don't mind. Well, that's, I kind of have two speeds. That's, that's your tone. That's my tone, and I, you can hear me banging the hell out of it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>
This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.